0: Good evening. Welcome, welcome. Do I go through my spiel? Should I tell you, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? I haven't stopped looking. Are you still looking? Um, Because that's what it's about. And too many uh, atheists and unbelievers and God haters are trying to bring in their version of utopia. Sadly, too many Christians, untaught, are trying to bring in their version of utopia. And failing to recognize specifically what the intensified stage of the angelic conflict is, what we are called to do as aliens, as ambassadors, as soldiers presently in the church age. Um, And you you probably, depending on the pastor you're listening to or the book you're reading or the radio you're listening to, you may hear that we're bringing in the kingdom. Uh, The kingdom will come when the king arrives, all right? And as of now, the kingdom is in a mystery state because the kingdom has been rejected. And that very hinge moment in the life of Christ, I think, is critical. So I expect moving forward, particularly when we get into our ecclesiology in basics, we're going to say a lot more about this. And what is the church? What is our role as the church? Because we are not, uh, and what is our expectation as a Gentile nation see? Quite a bit different from Israel and their theocracy. Uh, we're not a theocracy, and uh, we want to understand that as well. So I'm excited to uh, to kind of take over in this basic class. I last taught basics in uh, 2006, so it's been a while. Uh, there had been previously, Dan and Bob had taught a round of basics in 2012, and so now in 2016, uh, we have the latest version on the website, and uh, as far as how it's labeled and that, so... Um, I'm going to open us up with prayer, and then we'll kind of pick up where we left off with theology proper, and then uh, move on and uh, kind of cover the rest of this ground related to the personality, essence, character, attributes, and nature of God. So join me in prayer, and we will uh, appreciate the Lord's blessings tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together tonight. I thank you for um, all of the ways, Father, that your plan unfolds as you proceed from Alpha to Omega, according to the plan you set forth, and you have not varied from it, not even one time. And Father, uh, we're the ones that are the creatures of time, and we get surprised by things here and there, and, uh, and that's great. Father, we love your plan rather than our plan. And uh, thank you, Father, for being so faithful, day by day and moment by moment. So, Father, we've got a little change of plans here on Sunday nights with our basics class. We're happy to continue going and just thank you for being faithful. I pray for Pastor Dan and wisdom and guidance there as well, moving forward, Father, and rejoice in how faithful you are. And I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, I went ahead and went to the beginning of my theology section in the in the basics notebook. And by the way, there aren't any in the hallway, so we need to restock that and get some more basics notebooks printed up, get some more of those put in the hallway. They are on the website, which uh, you can't get to yet because uh, the, the modem is down. And <laughs> uh, well, you could have your own cell phone if you have your own uh, 3G, 4G, or whatever. You can get to the internet from this building, just not with our Wi-Fi. Um, But the basic doctrinal studies notebook is there. You go to audio files, completed series, basics, and there it is. And you'll find the whole 2006 basic series there, including the PDF notes, the entire notebook in a PDF document. And so um, the sections that are here, uh, starting with course there's an introduction and then the bibliology section then the theology section and that's that's where we are we're just going to continue working our way through through the summer through the sections uh we'll even have some time to maybe go off script if there's particular questions or there's deeper areas we want to explore particular questions i want to keep it as flexible as we as we need to for the base uh, for the benefit of the new christians the new uh, folks maybe who weren't here before and uh, perhaps don't have a uh, a frame of reference for uh, for this um Last week, Pastor Dan uh, went through the early part of this and dealing with Trinity. I want to just stress a couple of things um, in this. He wasn't reading from this notebook, by the way. Dan had written his own notes for, uh, for this. That'll become his own basics notebook um, at some future point in time. But I think that the blessing we have to study theology is just the grace to recognize that theology is a thing, <laughs> that it's possible, you know, that if God had wanted to remain unknown, we would have never found him. You know, Had he chosen to remain unknown, we would never have found him. Things which I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. You know, I, I think special revelation itself is sufficient to know that something did it. Uh, it didn't just happen on its own um, unless you're just so locked into the, the necessity of not having a God in the universe. The only people that can believe in, in an eternal universe or a spontaneous Big Bang uh, are the people that furiously don't want there to be a God. Um, everyone else uh, that's a creature that has, that's in the image of God, that has a soul that resonates with the God who made them, uh, views the universe and and knows that there is a God. Um, And so we can be thankful that God chose to reveal himself. He is nearby and he is knowable. We can be very thankful for that, that God is a creator, but God is also relational. God wants to communicate. God wants to relate. And it's it's amazing. I think even if I was just an atheist looking around, I would I would observe a couple things. I would observe a universe, but that has design, that has intelligence, that was designed by somebody. But I also notice every creature communicates, or most creatures communicate with barking or meowing or growling or or something. You know, uh, dolphin uh, chirping or or what have you. Um, From from everything, you know. I mean, all right, fine. There's some plankton and, and you know, but animal life communicates even bees i mean they communicate in ways we don't understand but the whole created universe among at least the animal realm they're all communicative well what would design the universe to be communicative except a communicator right or say god the son who we call the word well obviously if the word creates the universe it shouldn't shock us then that the creatures within the universe are communicative and that we ought to at least uh, identify that He's nearby and He's knowable, and uh, creation testifies to His glory. The elements of creation made in His image and likeness. Then we are left without excuse. Uh, A brand new believer already knows that there is a God, that His Son Jesus Christ died on the cross for His salvation. We, you know, that's kind of the information that's going to be provided to that person when they get saved, as they come to faith in Christ. so they know at least that there is a God and his son died on the cross for our sins and, and faith in Christ is, is the criteria, uh, the basis for which uh, eternal life is, is awarded. And, uh, but what they don't know is how much more there is to know about God, that there is so much more to know about him and that he wants us to know not only about him but to know him personally. And uh, Pastor Dan stressed that. I want to stress that again here tonight. God wants us to grow into adult sons and daughters with capacity for mature fellowship. And, uh, you know, in 1 John 1, 3, our fellowship is with the father and with the son. I think also when the Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. That's not just God. That's not just John's opinion. That's God's attitude as well. What joy does God have but to see his children walking in the truth and uh, the, the thrill of that? is a delight to him. Uh, I think that's also a concept we want to remember on Wednesday mornings when we study Proverbs, that a wise son versus a foolish son, and the joy to his parents versus the grief to his parents. And all of that that's true in Proverbs 10, related to human beings, of course, has a corollary with God himself. And a wise son and a foolish son, and what makes our father glad versus what uh, uh, causes him grief. So through, it is through biblical revelation that we can come to know the glories of God. Sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, immutability. Special revelation never gets you there. You can't sit under a tree and, and ponder the universe around you and learn the essence, attributes, nature, personality. Learn all the, the nature of who God is. You know that there is a God. His eternal nature, His power clearly seen. But if you want more to know, you've got go to go turn to Scripture. You've got to go to the special revelation that reveals this all right and even with what he has revealed i think we still know that it's the fringes of his ways and i think uh, there's some good verses that speak to that as well can you discover the depths of god can you discover the limits of the almighty you know you get saved you spend 90 years learning about the lord and you realize you've got eternity still in front of you <laughs> in what you've uh, in what you've learned So the baby believer needs to begin his theological studies by learning the basic aspects of Trinity. We had that material last week. The fact that, and he's got to start, he's got to start on it. I suspect he's got to start on it because he's heard about God and the forgiveness of sins, and he's heard about Jesus and dying on the cross, so he's got got two-thirds of his Trinity right there. Now, he may not have heard anything about the Holy Spirit, depending on who led them to the Lord and what they talked about and different things. See, some people, some people learn an awful lot. You know, Dan's an example of, they do a ton of reading. They hear a lot of things. They know a lot of stuff. And some people know things they've got to, or learn things they've got to unlearn once they get saved. Um, Other folks are just blithering ignorant in not knowing anything until they get saved. And then some, maybe in some ways that's, that's a better, fresher start. (laughs) I don't know. Um, but I think it's useful to learn the aspects of Trinity. I think it's useful in basics. I think it's good in Sunday school to learn about Trinity. I think it's useful to learn about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on a basic level, um, even though it's one of the toughest studies anyone could ever ponder. How can three be one? You know, it's, 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 it's inscrutable in some respects, and yet I think it's important for brand new believers, in, in some ways, because that's going to get attacked, it's going to be mocked and ridiculed, Muslims will say we're polytheists and other things. Um, so a baby believer ought to be grounded in that. And maybe, I found it helpful as well, once I learned that I was tripart, I was body, soul, spirit, and then I, I found a, an analogy there, and I said, well, wait a minute, I'm, th- I'm trichotomous, I'm three parts, God is Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. And it's not a true, in fact, some even mock that as being useful whatsoever, but I thought it was a big help. I liked it. To me, it, it made sense. Hey, I've got three parts. God is uh, God is three. And for me, uh, things were clicking, and, and I liked the idea. So before he begins to learn his essence box, though, the baby believer should keep in mind an underlying principle. And Dan stressed this. I want to stress this as well. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. You know, I can know about my wife. I can know the color of her hair and the color of her eyes and where she was born and that she has an older sister and who her parents are, but I can know facts about her and never know her. Say, and uh, we can know facts about God. We can recite verses. We can we can describe what He's like, and not truly know Him, not in the way that we're supposed to know Him in fellowship. And uh, I want to stress that as well tonight. And I don't recall if you read the the Packer quote or not. I'm going to share the Packer quote just because I, I like it so much. Um, there's a lot of Jay uh, Packer that I don't reference, <laughs> I don't cite, and I often I don't even mention the name from the pulpit because so, I don't want people just grabbing a book off the shelf and reading a lot of Packer uh, just because he's so Calvinistic and other things. But um, knowing God, I recommend, and I think it's devotional, I think it's greatly valuable, and I would recommend that folks, that folks read it. Uh, in fact, in John 17:3, it's a definition of eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And how sad is it that somebody receives the gift of eternal life, but never has a practical enjoyment of it until he gets to heaven. You know, we should have a practical enjoyment of it and a realization, experience of that eternal life here and now, as we know God, as we know his Son. Also John fourteen six, no one comes to the Father but by me. All right. Jeremiah 9. I like that one uh, as well. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Especially since you and I are commanded to boast in the Lord, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. If we're going to boast properly in the Lord, it's on the basis of our fellowship with the Father and with his Son. It's on the basis of how we know him and how he knows us and the intimacy of our fellowship. So it's the highest form of worship. God desires it above any offering we might bring. Hosea 6.6. uh, All right, there's the Knowing God book. That's one of the many covers. That's the 20th anniversary edition cover. It's got many editions, many covers, many uh, different uh, versions of it. But I, I clipped four paragraphs from it. You didn't read this, did you? I don't... Recall you reading this? Okay. The more complex the object, the more complex is the knowing of it. Knowledge of something abstract, like a language, is, is acquitted by learning. Knowledge of something inanimate comes by inspection and exploration. These activities, though demanding in terms of concentrated effort, are relatively simple to describe, but more complicated. One does not know a living thing till one knows not merely its past history, but how it is likely to react and behave under specific circumstances. You see, if you really, really know a person, then you know what their thinking is going to be on a subject matter. You know what, what they're going to say before you even ask on a particular aspect, depending on how well you know them. The uh, person who says, I know this horse, normally means not just I've seen it before, but more probably he means, I know how it behaves. You can tell you how it ought to be handled. Such knowledge only comes uh, through some prior uh, acquaintance with a horse, singing in action, trying to handle it oneself. You're just not going to know at the first glance how that horse is going to respond. In the case of human beings, the position is further complicated, I love this, by the fact that unlike horses, people cover up. And don't show everybody all that is in their hearts. People will hide things, rightly and wrongly. People will keep certain things private, and they have every right to keep certain things private, and you would expect that, that they would. And then there's other things that they out and out keep hidden uh, for wrong reasons, all right? And that shouldn't surprise us. That's what humans do. So, people cover up. They do not show everybody all that is in their hearts. A few days are enough to get to know a horse as well as you will ever know it. But you may spend months and years doing things in company with another person and still have to say at the end of that time, I don't really know him at all. Isn't that profound? I, I enjoy that, the way he wrote that. We write, and, and, but it's true. I mean, with a horse, yeah, a few days, give it some, and you know, within a short period of time, you know everything there is to know about that horse. And on the 25th, you know, it's not like a 25th wedding anniversary where you keep knowing your spouse more and more and more. I mean, a wife is not a horse. You don't learn everything there is in in a week. We recognize degrees in our knowledge of our fellow men. We know them. We say, well, not very well, just to shake hands with intimately or perhaps inside out. (laughs) Different phrase for how well you know a person, depending on how much or how little they've opened up to us when we meet them. And so the the parallel for this now is with God because has God hidden himself from us or has God opened himself to us? Has God shared with us his, his heart, his desire, his aim, his goals, his plan? Yes, he has. Do we know what angers him? Do we know what he loves? So thus the quality and extent of our knowledge of them depends more on them than on us. Our knowledge our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than of our attempting to get to know them. I mean, let's face it. There's some people you try and you try and you try and you're as friendly as anything and you do whatever and and if they're not going to open up, forget it. Forget it. You know, pretty soon you're a stalker. <laughs> yeah, now you're now you're hunting them down and trying to you know intrude into some things. Now that's not the plan. All right. When we meet, our part is to give them our attention and interest, to show them goodwill and to open up in a friendly way from our side. Uh, From that point, however, it is they, not we, who decide whether we're going to know them or not. So you be friendly, and if they want you to be friendly back, then perhaps a friendship will form. But no matter how friendly you are and and whatever, if if they shut it down, you will never get to know them. So imagine now that we're going to be introduced to someone now, and here's another dynamic: is the social dynamic. What if they are so more important than us, social standing or wealth or or political importance or or what have you, and they are so much greater than us, and we are so inferior to them? That puts a human dynamic into things that further complicates matters. Okay. So imagine now that we're going to be introduced to someone whom we feel as above. Us. I mean, imagine meeting the Queen of England next week. You know, if 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 what would you say? <laughs> you know, how would you dress? How? Uh, wh- what would you prepare? What would you, uh, you know, I mean, you don't want to come across as some, you know, whatever. I mean, don't you want to, anyway. And so, and, and why do I say the Queen of England is so important that I, get, I sweat meeting her or meeting the president or meeting another famous person, okay? Should I treat them like I treat my neighbor? All right, now I'm getting philosophical tonight Um, because the answer is yes (laughs) I should love them as I love my neighbor All right, let me get back to Packer here Um, imagine now that we're going to be introduced to someone whom we feel is above us whether in rank or intellectual distinction or professional skill or personal sanctity or in some other respect the more conscious we are of our own inferiority the more we shall feel that our part is simply to attend to him respectfully and let him take the initiative in the conversation Don't we show deference? Don't we kind of wait until you know, uh, we would like to get to know this exalted person, but we fully realize that this is a matter for him to decide, not us. If he confines himself to courteous formalities with us, we may be disappointed, but we do not feel able to complain. After all, we had no claim on his friendship. Who do we think we are anyway? This person is so important and obviously he's got better things to do than spend time with me. But if instead he starts at once to take us into his confidence and tells us frankly what is in his mind on matters of common concern, and if he goes on to invite us to join him in particular undertakings he has planned, and if he asks us to make ourselves permanently available for this kind of collaboration whenever he needs us, then we shall feel enormously privileged and it will make a world of difference to our general outlook. If life seemed footling and dreary hitherto, it will not seem so anymore. Now that this great man has enrolled us among his personal assistants, here is something to write home about. Here is something to live up to. Now imagine the king of the universe has done just that. And he has made his mind known. And he has invited us to share in his dwelling for all eternity. Anyway, Packer's illustration pictures what the Bible communicates regarding God. He has invited us into his own council. Who are we? Are you kidding? Um, I, I love these phrases. Genesis eighteen seventeen. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? As the Lord deliberates. And he says, no. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, and, and of course, in the church, of course, we're of higher standing than Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. Is God going to hide from us? See? Uh, We ought to be in tune with the plan of God. In fact, Ephesians calls us a fool if we don't know the will of God. Jeremiah 23, 18 and 22. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? And as a rhetorical question, we want to say, well, nobody. Well, wait a minute. Us. (laughs) Okay. Verse 22, but if they had stood in my counsel, they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil ways and from the evil of their deeds. See, in the conflict between Jeremiah and all the false prophets, um, one of them was in the council of God. (laughs) It was not all those false prophets. It was Jeremiah, the faithful and true servant of the Lord. The others were just phony frauds saying, thus saith the Lord, and they're making up stuff themselves john fifteen fifteen. no longer do i call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing this is significant dispensationally when you think of the advancement of the plan of god from the stewardship of israel to the stewardship of the church what he's preparing these disciples for these apostles for on the on the cusp of the of the church age but i've called you friends that's philoi for all things that i have heard from my father i have made known to you And that's uh, part of what we're called to be friends of God. How many people in the Old Testament were called friends of God? How many people in the New Testament are called friends of God? All of us, (laughs) the body of Christ. Lottie, dottie, everybody, right? And so a friend ought to know what his friend is doing. (laughs) You know, if somebody's doing something and he didn't tell you about it, well, maybe, maybe you're not quite the friend you thought you were. (laughs) All right. Oh, all right. Didn't know. Um But no, we should know, because he has made known what his will is. He has made us his fellow workers, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, God's fellow workers, you're a God's field, God's building, something to live up to indeed. Fellow workers, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Walking in a manner worthy of the God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. Count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. And and in none of those cases is the worthiness our own to produce and earn any of this. It is all by grace that we're saved and the worthiness comes as a reflection, comes as an appreciation, comes as an expression of what the worthiness he causes us to be. We are worthy in him. We have his worth when we receive his righteousness. And I tell you, that right there ought to be lesson number 1 for a brand new believer your sins are gone. They were were imputed to Christ. His worthiness is now imputed to you. His righteousness is now yours. So quit saying, oh my goodness, it's not your goodness, it's his goodness, all right? It's his righteousness, it's his worth, it's his merit. If you're going to walk in a manner worthy, if God's going to count you worthy, it's because he counted Christ worthy and you are placed in Christ, baptized into union with Christ. And that's the only way. So these these foundational lessons, I think, are vital for a brand new believer to to cling to on on day one of their eternal life. All right, I'm going to skim through the, I'm just going to pass by the Trinity things here. Um, Excellent class last week that Dan taught on Trinity. Let's talk about personality. Something that um, I promised to develop later and still have yet to do so, Uh, I really want to give a deeper Level of understanding on the personality of God, on His personality, on His character, on His nature. All right, I think uh, attributes and essence is the basics. Beyond that, personality, character, and nature go into more intermediate, more advanced studies. I, I think that it and, and you can't you can't by definition teach a babe this because a babe needs to grow to the capacity to have this kind of fellowship. The best kind of fellowship you're going to have with a babe is, you know, goo, 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 and da, 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 and some of the, the, the rudimentary noises they make as they mimic speech until they learn how to speak. Um, but the older son, the older, you know, as in, in adolescence and immaturity, then you can have the true deep fellowship with the father and with the son. And that's where, really, I mean, how much personality does a two year old have? Uh, some, some have more than others, I grant you. But even those with the most expressive two-year-old personality, it remains a two-year-old personality. And I suspect it'll be a bit different by the time they're 10, you know, 15, 20, in, uh, in different ways. So the personality of God. Uh, understand God as a person. And this is a point where really it helps learning Trinity first, then learning attributes, and then studying personality. Because I believe the Father's personality is distinct from the personality of the Son. Is distinct from the personality of the Holy Spirit. They are distinct persons. Why would they have identical personality? Now it doesn't violate Trinity. They are equal in essence and attributes, and, the, and, and Father, Son, Holy Spirit is God, very God, and, and, and so forth. But having different personality does not mean unequal Personality is not an equality inequality uh, scale of, of better or worse or superior or inferior or inferior. They are are no less co equal members of Trinity by virtue of having different personalities. See, and I think that might be helpful as well when we describe husbands and wives and how wives submit to their husbands. Does that mean, them, does that mean they're inferior? All right. And why is a woman's personality different than the man's personality? You know or the husband's personality, different than the wife's personality. And admittedly, in marriage, oftentimes there will be a, a blending and a meshing and, and personalities may start to approach one another. but still there's things that are distinct that remain distinct, no matter how long that folks stay married. okay? All right. So personality. He has personality as a person. So the father has a personality, the son has a personality the Holy Spirit has a personality, and it may even be the case, I haven't decided yet, does the triune God in unity have a unified personality? I'm not sure yet. I'm still mulling on that. Essence is thought of as what God is. Personality can be thought of as what is he like? What kind of God is God? Um, I think personality is what is he like? And nature, or character, would be what kind of God is God? Okay. So, um, and often there's overlap. Since God is love, right? Don't you think His personality probably includes some element of love? It it would it be unthinkable if His personality would be completely devoid of love, given the fact that in essence God is love. So clearly. God would have a loving personality. But how do they communicate that? I think the father's loving personality is of a sort, and the son's loving personality is of a sort. And they do resonate. And I believe that the intimacy between the father and son is because of the way that their loving personality interacts with themselves. And for that, I think we can be thankful for Proverbs chapter 8 in how the Son was delighting in the Father, and the Father was delighting in the Son. And I think that the Father's loving personality found an object in the Son, and the Son's loving personality found an object in the Father. And their personalities uh, meshed unbelievably. Okay? That's uh, unlike in the human realm, where often our personalities don't exactly click. And uh, that's, I think that's key. And uh, we'll talk about that in, in uh, anthropology and in uh, ecclesiology. How do we love one another if our personalities don't click? Okay? How can I love my brother if in strictly human terms we've got nothing in common? We have no rapport. We have no in fact, not only worse than that, um, their just grates on me like, like nails on a chalkboard. And even worse, my personality makes them want to vomit. All right? I mean, man, my personality is offensive to certain folks for different reasons. Now, is that an obstacle to agape love? Is that an obstacle to fellowship in the in the Word of God? It's not supposed to be. That's right. So, uh, God is love. He's a loving God. So, God is love. That's essence. He's a loving God. That's personality. God is righteous. Essence. He is a righteous God. I think that's... It probably reflects itself in his personality, the fact that he is just, that he is impartial in his personality. I think it's more of his character uh, that he is just, in his character and his integrity that he is righteous and just. Uh, How much of that character comes across in the personality? I think that's worth studying and consideration. So in essentially every element of essence will be reflected by a personality trait or it can depending on the circumstances also keep in mind personality is often um contingent on its expression okay i may be just generally a a happy go lucky friendly kind of guy jovial okay i may have a naturally jovial personality but determine, you know, depending on circumstances in my culture and in my um, nation and other things, I may have very few occasions to really be my jovial self. God may have some amazing personality expressions and yet he does not always express them depending on the, the circumstances as he relates with his creatures. In other cases... I think there's elements of personality we don't learn until we're more intimate with a person. Okay? Some of the funniest people I know, um other people don't know how funny they are. Because until you really get to know them, they're really kind of more quiet and more reserved and 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 you tell somebody, "Oh yeah, so and so, he's he he cracks me up. He's a hoot." And they look at you like, "What are you talking about? I've never seen that side of him. I've never seen I didn't I had no clue that they were that funny really well yeah you got you ought to get to know them okay because there's this other personality thing that's they reserved and aspects there anyway I'm, I'm speaking tonight in a lot of human analogy we're going to find the scriptures i think to, to spell all this out he who sits in the heavens laughs i think that's a clue as to his personality i think it's a clue as to his nature the things what are the things god finds funny Psalm 2 says it's rebellion against him. (laughs) Rebellion against his Christ. People's devising a vain thing and God's just laughing at them like, are you kidding me? You think you're really ahead of me on this? You think I'm clueless as to what you're doing? And God just laughs at that. Other things that make God laugh. I think we have passages in scripture that really lock us into his personality. The father's personality, the son's personality, and even the Holy Spirit's personality, which is why we identify him as a person and not just a thing or an essence or a force. Now, um, let me get past some of these other aspects here. I love the acronym PECON, and I'm really hoping to market that someday and write books and make money. No, teasing. But personality, essence, character, attributes, and nature. And and really to, to learn all about God and to learn more of Him, not just about Him, but learn Him, I think those those breakdowns are helpful. Personality, essence, character, attributes, and nature. And in basics we start with essence and attributes, and lump those all together under the essence of God study. Uh, personality and character and nature, we can lump all three of those together in a a personality of God study, which I think would be more intermediate, what's not included in this notebook, what's not included tonight. Um, And yet, we have how many times in the Bible, what's the most common phrase in the Bible that describes God? Old Testament everywhere, right? New Testament citations quoting the Old Testament, that he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That tells you about his nature. He is not a quick-tempered God, not by nature. His nature is compassionate and gracious. Grace is not an attribute. It's not an essence box item. It's a part of his nature. What kind of God is God? He's a gracious God. He's a compassionate God. He's also a jealous God. Um, And so how many verses from Exodus 33, Exodus 34, 2 Samuel 24, 2 Chronicles? They're all there. They're all linkable. If you make a a Logos resource out of this, man, you can can read every one of these verses. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. No kidding. Because fallen humanity by nature is not compassionate and gracious. (laughs) All right. Um, but God is by nature. Put me in the hands of God. I don't want to be in the hands of man. Psalm twenty five, six. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your chesed, your loving kindness, remember me, for your goodness' sake, O Lord. And just clinging to that nature. I think the more we identify the nature of God in, in these terms, the more ready we are to um, pray, the more ready we are to come to Him at any time, day and night, to to present our knees before Him, to cling to Him. When we forget His nature is when we get reluctant to pray, reluctant to ask, reluctant to bother Him, reluctant to, well, you know, uh, I, I, I don't deserve anything anyway, so, you know, when we start to think that God has a nature like our human father's, that he's going to be disappointed in us and he's going to be mad and he's going to hold a grudge that he's not going to give us what we need because uh, man, I'm going to have to work for a while to kind of make it up to him. Then maybe he'll kind of kind of get over some of the things of my past that maybe I can earn and deserve something again. Maybe I can. The problem is I've lost track of the nature of God. I've completely lost track of his nature. And I've substituted human wisdom for what Scripture reveals is God's true nature. No, he is a compassionate and gracious God, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Abounding in truth. You know, in some cases, you know, we, we think about disappointment because we get disappointed. And we get disappointed when we, we learn of things that we had maybe suspected or hoped wouldn't happen. And then we finally gets confirmed what we suspected is true, and oh, okay, well now we're disappointed. Well, an omniscient God does not experience that disappointment like we do. An omniscient God knew all about that from the foundation of the world and before. An omniscient God does not experience the disappointment the way that we do, having it unfold and wanting it not to be true, and then you know lying to ourselves, convincing ourselves it's not true, and then finally all evidence Makes us accept, okay, it's true. And then we're disappointed. That's not how God operates. It's not his omniscience, his foreknowledge, it's not his plan. Those whom he foreknew, including every failure, okay, he called and he justified, okay? That's us. And so we're not going to disappoint him, okay? That, that him, you know, I wonder if his heart is breaking too. Uh, uh, yeah, no. I. I That that stanza in that hymn bothers me. All right. One of the most overlooked personality traits of God is that he is jealous. And because we so associate the negative jealousy, the carnal jealousy, the sinful jealousy. But sanctified jealousy is perfectly uh, valid. We ought to exhibit it ourselves. Paul said he was jealous for the Corinthians with a godly jealousy. We ought to be jealous for one another. I'm jealous for my flock just as I'm jealous for my wife, I'm jealous for my kids, I'm jealous for those objects of my love, God is jealous for himself. And uh, jealousy is even one of his names in Exodus thirty-four fourteen, whose name is jealous. He shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. That's his nature. By nature, he's a jealous God. What kind of God is God? He's a jealous God. All right. So anyway, there may be others that put that in his essence because of that verse. And it's more, I think there's a fine art to taking a, an aspect and saying, well, this belongs in essence. This belongs in attributes. This belongs in in uh, nature. This belongs in personality. This belongs in, I mean, if, if we're going to take something and put them in their appropriate classifications and boxes, we ought to at least be humble enough to realize, you know, there's flexibility here. We can differ. There's uh, different pastors may teach it in different ways. Okay? And, uh, and we ought to be humble enough because there's no passage in the Bible that says the essence of God is and, and lists it out like the fruit of the Spirit is. Okay? Uh, and, until we end up with a verse like that anywhere in the Bible, then I think we ought to be gracious enough with one another if they organize things in a different classification. You know, there's some pretty complicated ones out there. I I tend to, I I subscribe to the KISS principle. I want to keep it simple, okay? Um, I just think, you know, keep it simple. Learn the the little things, you know, just like a kid would do. A little kid would learn different things about who he is and about himself and would learn, you know, that, hey, I'm me and that's my sibling and I'm a boy and that's a girl and there's my mom and there's my dad. And and you start to learn the basics of, of the universe around you from the youngest of ages. I think a new believer needs to do the same thing. Hey this is me and i 'm a human and i'm body soul and spirit and hey this is my God and he's uh righteousness and justice and love and then you just you start to learn the basics and and it might be just as simple as you know where's your nose and you touch your nose and i mean that's how you teach a baby all the basics of of who they are so if if uh, if I'm reading a pastor i'm reading a theology book and and the discussion of the at- of the attributes of God is plunging into realms of imminent attributes and transitive attributes and, and some of these other real complicated things. I mean, I, I struggle and I, I learn what they're saying and I want to digest the content, but then when I'm done I say, uh I'm I'm not going to teach it like that, not to not a you know, basics class, not to my flock, not to um not to a new believer. Does that make sense? All right. Uh, related to his jealousy, it's his vengeful personality, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's his nature to pay back, but to pay back in his timing because of his compassion, because of his patience. Uh, We struggle. In fact, this is one we can't replicate, not in our humanity. Humanity does not have the capacity for this. Even redeemed humanity does not have capacity for this. We're told redeemed humanity walking by the Spirit is told to leave judgment, to leave vengeance in the hands of God. Another aspect of his personality is his sense of humor. Find the things that make him laugh. Find the places in Scripture where God finds it funny. Find the passages in Scripture where the Holy Spirit finds it funny and records it that way in the canon. Do I lack a madman that you brought this one to act the madman in my presence? That is hilarious. King Achish, a Philistine. And I don't suspect that he was a believer. I don't suspect he was regenerate at all. Unless somehow David led him to to a saving knowledge. But... um, but when he said those words and the Holy Spirit thought, Man, and he put that in the Bible, do I lack madmen that you've brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Okay. To me, that's the Holy Spirit's humor right there. You know, those words were spoken, and the Holy Spirit said, Ooh, that's going in the Bible. <laughs> right? I'm going to inspire that. Nathan's writing that down in, in first Samuel. There it goes. Okay. Finally, we must conclude that, as a trait of god 's personality, he is supremely confident or secure. You ever think about insecurity all right and I think we all have insecurities in different ways and different reasons, and furiously, I think many of us do the best we can to mask every insecurity we have, and so we don 't even want to talk about it If you bring it up, we act like we never heard of it. What are you talking about um, because it's it's a it's a point of intimacy if you allow for your insecurities, for another person to know that insecurity. And hopefully we have that kind of intimacy one with another in the body of Christ where we can be praying for one another, we can identify certain things um, that we know, hey, this is a touchy area, I didn't know, sorry, I didn't know. Uh, uh, know, I I think I made a a statement this morning about a, a divorce that could hurt 20 years later. And I didn't realize that that was exactly the case in, in, in an instance uh, of somebody sitting here that morning. I, I didn't know, okay? Now that I do know, I'm going to be more aware of it. I'm going to be more aware of, hey, this is a, a sensitivity. This is a um, an insecurity, okay? But you want to talk about a person who is so confident and so secure in who he is, it is the I am all right, I am the self-existent being of existence, the only self-existent being, the only pure actuality. How could he be insecure? By definition, it's inconceivable because I am. Pure actuality is, uh, is uh, the uh, antithesis of anything that an insecurity would present. And so he needs nothing from any creature. He is confident, secure, and completely perfect in his being. The only need, quote-unquote, that he has is his need, quote-unquote, to be consistent with his own personality, essence, character, attributes, and nature. And we say it's a necessity, it's a logical necessity of being. He cannot be inconsistent. He cannot deny himself. He cannot lie because he is true. He cannot sin. He cannot, uh, the things that God cannot do, He cannot do them by virtue of who He is, by virtue of His perfection. For Him to do something imperfect would would violate perfection. And so He has a need, we say need, quote-unquote, it's a need, not in the sense of a deficiency or a lack, an insufficiency. It's need on a logical basis. It is a logical necessity. He is logically necessary to be consistent with his own personality, essence, character, attributes, and nature. Okay? And if we see in the Bible that he's acting contrary to his nature, more likely than not, it's because God himself is balancing various aspects of his nature. No, no personality trait exists by itself. No element of, of essence operates by itself. Yes, he's long-suffering, but he's also righteous and just. And so if there's a tension there, he balances that tension. And he himself may act contrary to his, you know, he's willing to express his wrath, but he's also wanting to express his compassion. So he endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Does that mean he's acting contrary to his nature? No. It's just it's a multifaceted nature, and he himself is balancing the different components, balancing the different competing um, elements of his personality. All right. The only need that he has is to be consistent with himself. So Acts seventeen, twenty five, he doesn't need anything. Is he served by human hands as though he needed anything? Since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. He's the source of everything. All creation comes from his will, comes from his mind. Everything that exists exists by his grace, by his provision, by his mercy. What could he possibly need since he's the source of everything? Psalm fifty. Verses 8 through 15. And uh, again, the cattle on a thousand hills. Why do we take that idiomatically? Why do we take that as an expression, as an idiom, rather than than a literal number? Because as a literal number, a thousand is too small. (laughs) Every cattle on every hill, everywhere in all existence. Why does my God not own the cattle on a thousand and one hills? Or a thousand and two hills. How many hills are on this planet anyway? How many how many hills are there? How, many, how much cattle is there on the planet? And why just this planet? Okay? That's why we can take this text idiomatically, as an idiom, as a, as a metaphor. Okay? And why in Psalm 105 and in Deuteronomy and other passages we have the textual basis to take them literally, such as a thousand generations of those who love me. Okay? the wrath of God to the third and fourth generation. We have text-based reasons to take those literally. We have text-based reasons to take this metaphorically. Anyway, Second 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen? <laughs> All right. Speaking as I mean, who who is not faithless on some occasion? Anytime you're carnal, you're faithless. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. All right, so that's his personality, his character, his nature. We can turn to his attributes, to his essence. You know, the essence box I memorized as a child, I had those ten attributes. And we call it the essence box, although later on we started to diagram it as a triangle instead of a square. And so it was a triangular box in our essence box. But by making it a triangle, it allowed you to also illustrate Trinity. And you could put Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on your triangle corners, and then you could fill in the uh, attributes inside the triangle, and you get a twofer. You get, you get to teach two doctrines with one diagram and uh, use flannel graphs for the kids and whatever else. Um, sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, immutability, immutability veracity. Uh, it was kind of funny listening to... Um, Dan teaching about you know Psalm 139. I love Psalm 139. This you know it's a favorite omnipresence uh, passage. Well, it is, but it's also a favorite omniscience passage. Uh, before you get to the omnipresence part, you know, and you have the omniscience part first. Uh, I recommend, by the way, that you just use these as as meditation. Uh, items use these. Take a pick a pick a week and say this week is sovereignty week. And, you know, next week is love week or whatever. Uh, and just take an attribute and and dwell on that attribute throughout the week. Find some verses, memorize some verses, dwell on some verses. Um, you know, you're you cornered an elevator and somebody says, uh, "Where in the Bible does it say God is sovereign?" Hmm. Okay. And uh and then you have one of those real embarrassing moments where you can't remember Luke twenty-two, thirty-one. <laughs> All right. You, you're, you're trying to find Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, and you're checking out two different chapters. I think, well, it's chapter twenty-one maybe, or chapter twenty-four, maybe, and then you're embarrassing yourself in front of everybody on a Sunday morning when it's chapter twenty-two. All right? But I recommend this is why scripture memory has value. This is, this is why knowing where these things are. Picking some key verses, learning some scripture memory melodies and saying, yeah, I can tell you where it is. I can sing a song for you if you want. Want to know about God's sovereignty? Want to know about God's love, God's justice? You know, find some verses and, and, and just dwell on them. Talk to them. Uh, you know, if somebody asks you about it, you know, because if you're in an elevator, how long do you have before... The elevator ride is over and that venue is closed. What are you going to say? Oh, go call my pastor, shoot my pastor an email? Ask him on Wednesday nights? No, he asked you here, right here, right now in this elevator. What's your answer? Okay, And I think it's useful. So, um, there it is. Also keep in mind, he's, he's all these parts together in totality, and if you overstress one of them and deny others, you have a skewed view of God. And I think we, we, we face that. Man, we face that. We have these God-haters, these Bible skeptics, these mockers. And they absolutely, they, they see terrible things happening in a fallen world. And they say, how can you tell me God's a God of love? Look at this poor child with cancer. Look at this terrorist attack. Look at this whatever. This bad stuff happens in a, in a world. And you tell me that God is love. And they want to throw up their hands and say, there is no God. A God of love wouldn't let that happen. See? Well, if we have the right teaching on the essence of God, then we're equipped to talk about the love of God. We're also equipped to talk about the justice of God. We're equipped to talk about the omniscience of God. We're equipped to talk about the plan of God. We can talk about the love of God that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we can talk about the fall of man and say, "Hey, it's a it's a fallen world. It is it is a fallen world." And if you're waiting for a, a utopia where uh, where nothing bad ever happens, well, guess what? I am too. According to His promise, I'm looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This earth, there's a lot of unrighteousness. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of horrible things. But we can talk about this love that you're doubting, that you're mocking, that you're that you're having a problem with. Okay. So all of these attributes are important. I think, too, um, they get twisted. They get uh, misapplied by not just Bible skeptics and God-haters. They get misapplied and and maladjusted by well-meaning and uh, uh, improperly taught believers who compromise on sin because, well, we want to love everybody. And so in the name of loving everybody, they don't speak the truth in love. And they don't describe the sin for what it is. And they they, um, they compromise in their faith towards the center. And they call it love, and it's not love. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, it rejoices in the truth. And so if I tell a fornicator that, well, that's okay, God loves you. No. You, you What you are pursuing defies God and his word. All right? and And it would not be love to tell you to keep doing it. It would not be love to tell you, well, it's okay. I'm going to tell you in love, stop, stop now. Absolutely stop now. <laughs> okay? I find it interesting. The last two, uh, we've had visitors recently. They not only visited, but they came to prayer meeting. And they sat down and they said, I could use some prayers. So I said, great, let's pray. And in both cases, um, before we started praying, I, you know, I said, well, when did you come to the Lord? How did you receive eternal life? And they both gave me the clearest gospel testimonies you could ever want to hear. And then the way they said, the way they described, I mean, the way they talked about it, it was, I was thankful that they described a very clear gospel. And in both cases, and the most two recent ones I'm, th- I'm thinking about, when they got saved, they were they were living a, a non-biblical lifestyle. Okay, well, what do you expect? They're not saved. <laughs> All right. And they knew, they were told, when, and when they accepted Christ and when they received eternal life, They realize problem number one is going to be going back home and telling my partner in sin, I have a new life. I have a new father. I have a new standard of righteousness. And it says the hardest thing they ever had to do. But they they did it on, you know, immediately after their salvation was, look, this is what I found. This is my eternal life. And and here's a babe in Christ, just got saved today, just got saved this morning, goes home from work that evening and tells their live-in girlfriend, this has to stop. Let me tell you about eternal life. Let me tell you about sin. Let me tell you about a Savior. And why can a brand-new believer just saved this morning have the courage to speak the truth in love? And we've got pastors and churches and Christians have been saved for decades, and they will duck the issue and run from it and compromise and, and not tell the fornicator they're fornicating. That bothers me. But I'm thankful for the last two visitors we've had on a couple of Wednesday nights not long ago. All right. So, the different parts are not manifest at the, par- at the expense of any other part. Yes, God is love, but he cannot express that love in violation of his righteousness and his justice. He is love. But a loving God sends unbelievers to hell every day. Okay, It's not, you know, they they tell you that's not possible. The skeptic, the mocker, the God-hater says, oh, how can a loving God send anybody to hell? How can a loving God not send them to hell? If you understand love and you understand their nature, you understand what hell is, you understand what the lake of fire is, it would be a twisted, malevolent creature that would take a fallen being to glory. What kind of hell would heaven be? to the unregenerate. <laughs> you talk about taking a person and putting him in a sphere that is so alien to his nature. Actually, the lake of fire is suitable to the, to the unregenerate. The lake of fire is compatible to that unbeliever, the fallen angel or fallen human. The lake of fire is the habitat for that creature. And the loving God sends him there. I believe he does so in love. God is sovereign, but he cannot manifest sovereignty in a way that would change himself and violate his own immutability. I think Calvinism has a a problem defining the sovereignty of God. And they try to defend the sovereignty of God, and by virtue of defending it, it doesn't need us to defend it, but by defending it in the way that they do, they deny human volition, they deny free will. And I think that's actually a, a diminished view of God's sovereignty. I think that giving us free will and and the permissive will of God magnifies his sovereignty. That a God who cannot encompass with permissive will that has to robotically control every choice you make is an inferior God. But the God that can maintain sovereignty in spite of billions of angels and billions of humans committing trillions of, of negative volition choices, that is an amazingly sovereign God almost incomprehensible in in our finite understanding. All right. Well, there's the elements of attributes and and all of that. Um, We'll pick up here next week, and um, we'll see if uh, different folks make it that aren't here tonight. Um, I may come back to these attributes. I may just let you read through them on a homework basis. Uh, I'm going to put a lot of prayer into uh, not only next week but the following weeks, kind of the rest of the course of the summer. And what we're going to do with these videos, what we're going to do with the uh, the class itself, and uh, and so forth. So join me in those prayers if you would, and we'll uh, we'll seek God's wisdom in that regard. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your grace, Father. We have a number of, of newer believers in our flock, Father, and we recognize that and we're thankful. That uh, that you have blessed us with uh, with a new sheep in uh, in this fold, and yet, Father, uh, we we recognize that they have particular needs in terms of milk, in terms of basics. But we're not we're not fooling ourselves, Father. Everybody needs to review the basics again and again and again and again, Father, to wh- where we have it down uh, cold, where we can where we can just teach it at a moment's notice, at the drop of a hat, Father, where. Uh, We have the the familiarity and the competence with the material. We can just uh, immediately um, start taking a a brother by the hand and walking him through the the basic teachings of your word. Father, thank you for this uh, privilege. Thank you for this delight. Thank you for this assignment. And we uh, commit all things to you, Father, in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.